hello everyone. It's been a little while. Um, I'm very excited this morning as I'm doing a first in-person recording for quite some time, certainly over a year, I think, um, as lockdown restrictions have eased. So I jumped in the car and um, yeah, I'm going to do a couple of in-person recordings even during our summer break. Um, when I started the podcast, uh, you know, I looked around me in the local area and we did an episode or a couple of episodes on education and technology in Hackney in East London. Uh, and now um, for the last two years, I found myself in West Devon in the UK. And um, I'm really excited about uncovering a couple of the things that are happening down here as well. So um, the first interview I'm going to do and that you're going to hear from today is with the head of learning at Schumacher College. And why I'm interested in speaking to them is because they are very much a, a head, hand and heart um, sort of philosophy of learning. So very much um, kind of in person and um, also with a sort of ecological bent. So you know how do we think about um, our place in the world um, in in relation to subjects like economics and, and others um, which is something that I think is becoming more and more popular um, but if you have that philosophy of sort of practical in-person community how do you balance that with this new world of hybrid digital and online so um, I'm interested to hear how they're tackling that um, and then later on, um, uh, I'm hoping to also record with the Real Ideas organisation based in Plymouth. Um, and they're doing some really interesting things around um, access to digital careers and also um, becoming a uh, sort of place of excellence for virtual reality. Um, and so super excited to also chat to them. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's kind of what uh, I'm doing at the moment. Um, it's kind of what we've got coming up and um, in the meantime whilst we're on summer break I have been busy uh, working with Ian Hurd on um, building out a self-paced uh, online course for how to launch a podcast uh, including your first episode and then once that course is launched we'll be doing another one on commercializing your podcast so um, I've been kind of thinking quite deeply at the moment about um, this explosion or renaissance of audio as a learning medium um, so we're seeing more and more of that with startups popping up around audio being an accessible micro learning tool um, but also podcasting obviously as a, as a sort of more um, generic communication tool as well so if any of that sounds of interest to you um, we've got a pre-registration link which I'll drop in the show notes for this episode but otherwise wherever you are um, it's been a while I'm recording this on my phone because I've managed in 10 minutes before the interview is about to take place to jam a memory card into my Zoom H6 so that I can't use that today so apologies for the slightly alternative audio quality for this episode but we'll be back up and running um, next time and uh, I just need to find a screwdriver to make that happen. So, you know, who knows? It could even happen this time around. But yeah, wherever you are, I hope you're okay, doing well. Um, and yeah, enjoy the episode. Bye-bye. Yes, 
so we're sat in the beautiful gardens of Dartington Hall. I'm here with Pavel Senkel, who's the Director of Learning for Dartington Hall Trust, of which Schumacher College is sort of part of that family. Um, so, Pavel, just to kick off, perhaps you could introduce yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for taking the time, Sophie. We really, really appreciate you coming coming here. And, no, it's uh, an absolute delight <laughs> to be here. Yeah, it's wonderful. Hopefully the birds aren't too loud in the background, but no, it's just I'm wonderful to it. be outside. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I've been at Dartington for about 18 months. I uh, started in October of 2019, so a couple of months before COVID and before yeah, oh everything wow. started up. So, um, And I started out as uh, head of Schumacher College, which, as you said, is part of Dartington, uh, and then you know, evolved into also being the director of learning for the, for the whole of the trust. And so what that means is, as we've been evolving you know, during COVID, during all of the lockdown, um, according to a strategic plan that was put in place right right before I arrived and, and still um, still was continuing to evolve, developing from a, a handful of postgraduate programs at Schumacher College. You know, for example, in 2019, we ran two postgraduate programs that were fully residential, um, ecological design thinking and economics for transition. Yeah. And we had about 25 students in total. Um, today, we have over 100 students uh, across five programs, across two separate colleges. Uh, and this coming year, we're looking at having a dozen different programs across those two schools. And so we have, since since I arrived, developed a Dartington Arts School, um, in which there, there was a, a Dartington College of Arts here um, up until you know, 2010 or, or thereabouts. Um, and you know, this is a, a revitalization of the arts program. Yeah. Um, yeah. And sort of really looking at the, the rich history of just about a hundred years of uh, experimentation and you know progressive engagement with arts and with ecology and with social justice. And so what we've done over the past year, year and a half really, is to focus the, the trust mission um, on exactly that, to be a center for learning, um, really focusing on arts, ecology, and social justice and where those three areas might intersect. And so to do that, we've got a whole host of top programs, as I've said. We're starting out with another a new um, undergraduate program in regenerative food and farming. Um, and we've also shifted a lot of our delivery from fully residential, where students would stay for six months on end, to a low residency model, which is incredibly popular. We had record applications last year, and again, record applications this year. And I think, you know, perhaps COVID is, is you know, partly responsible for that because, you know, they are much more flexible to engage in uh, and students can have jobs, you know, whilst they engage in really, uh, you know, um, immersive, embodied, experiential learning and also have time away uh, and yeah. be able to engage online with those courses. So the majority of our courses are low residency at the moment. Yeah, it's very timely at the moment with G7 in Cornwall to think about all these topics. But, I mean, why I was really excited to connect with you and come and talk to you is, um, so on the podcast, you know, we've, we've had this um, sort of acceleration of people using educational technology and getting to grips with online learning. And um, that's been both good and bad. So we've seen the, the worst excesses of that as well. And I think... Now there's this ambition to take the best parts of, of, of what we've learned, but add a more um, human-centered approach, shall we say, yeah. something that's a bit more collaborative, that um, adds in that sort of social-emotional learning aspect. Um, and, you know, as a college which um, talks a lot about sort of head, hand and heart and is, you know, practical learning 
and you know we see a lot on the way in around you know crafts and the arts that you talked about so I was really interested to say you know if you have a college with that philosophy how are you then grappling with maintaining that philosophy whilst also sort of using technology to scale or yeah well I think there are a couple of different approaches one the low residency approach which, you know, in a non-COVID environment would allow students to come here for two weeks, um, typically, two weeks to have immersive residential learning and use this space um, and have those experiences. And then sort of the long tail of that is an additional four weeks for, let's say, a given module um, where they would be off-site, online, and engaging with their own environments um, and applying some of the tools and skills they've learned whilst they were here. So that's one model that we're working with. Um, The other, which we're actually piloting a bit in a new master's program that's starting on the 21st of June, so quite soon, that I've been developing, the Movement, Mind, and Ecology master's program, um, where we have a cohort of 12 students in the program, half of whom are here on site and half of whom are online, um, simply because of COVID travel restrictions and inability to to, to actually be here. So we have students in New Zealand, Nepal, um, India, uh, and elsewhere. Uh, where some of those are red-listed countries and um, they can't travel. So what we're developing there is the same experiential, and I I love that you you focused on the head, heart, and hands model um, that Satish Kumar has written quite a bit about, the founder of Shumaka College, and and we've really taken that to be the the heart and soul of of what we do across Dartington. How how do you translate that intersection of intellectual, um, affective um, and embodied practice, really those three pieces. Yeah. And so what we're finding is, you know, we have, for example, a, a, an alumni network of about 20,000 um, around the world, and we have had historically a really large international contingent uh, come through the, through the college. So we have these wonderful nodes um, of the network that are in all of the places um, that we're connecting our students with. And for, I'll give you an example. I was just on you know, three or four calls this week, uh, one with an organization called Efecto Mariposa in Colombia, uh, one with a recent alumna in Peru who's developing an eco-village there, uh, and one coming up with uh, Escola Schumacher in Brazil, uh, and one with a group in Tanzania and, and South Africa, and sort of thinking yeah, about you know, how we can capitalize on this network of people who are doing exciting and amazing things, which are... Um, the embodiment of the Schumacher and Darting to practice, and connect them with the students who are already on those in those sites. Mm-hmm. Right? So, for example, our student in Nepal, we're able to connect with practitioners in Nepal uh, who are doing the types of things that that you know he might be interested in doing. So, if he's online with us, um, largely in an asynchronous mode, right? We've I think we've all learned that nobody wants to sit on in Zoom lectures forever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, particularly with time zone challenges as well. Yeah. You know, we have a lot of material um, that can be accessed you know, asynchronously and doing sort of non-live chats and, and, and message boards and that sort of thing. Um, but then to have the ability to engage in experiential learning where they are um, on sites with facilitators who are there. So it's really a, kind of what I've been calling a, a global distributed learning network um, mm. that is you know, grounded here um, but allows students access um, in different places in the world. It's almost like the measure of success if those nodes go out and, and become successful in their own right and it doesn't have to be something that's sort of centred here in, in Devon that you have to be 
physically present, but you can take those values and, and exactly. them kind of thing. Exactly. For me, it's it's a bit about access as well, mm. right? That you know, can we make because it's it's challenging for someone you know to come from all the way around on the other side of the world to travel to Devon to to devote you know half a year to be in residence. Um, you know, or even if it's a low residency program, what are the logistics of you know, traveling that distance to be here for two weeks and then not for four and then back and forth? Um, so we're, we're experimenting for various um, opportunities of access for those students. So I think we were going there anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you've probably heard this from a lot of people that you know, COVID has pushed us much faster down a road we were already going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in terms of you know, just using technology you know, in, in uh, delivering higher education, um, and I think you know, particularly in a place like Schumacher, which was so built on you know, being in place and having the experience, uh, the feedback that we've gotten over the last year from students and from teaching staff is that you know, if we, in, in a number of courses, that online actually is really effective. Um, and in fact, maybe having four sets of two-week residential periods might be too much mm. for some people. Um, and so is there a way to actually hold community maybe having fewer of those? Um, I don't think that works universally for every program, but I think for some of them, um, that might really be the way to go. So uh, from my perspective, as we were headed down this road already, um, and you know, I've been sort of thinking about and exploring ideas of you know, delivering experiential learning online at a distance you know, for quite a while, um, then I think that's where I'd like to see us to get to get to, where mm-hmm. we're running effectively parallel, potentially, courses that are you know, low residency, that are online, um, that intersect really meaningfully, uh, and that have this sense of both learning community and the the experience that is at the heart of what we do. And would you ever play around with, like, enrollment dates and, and that kind of thing, or is that integral to building that community and that cohort? No, we are playing around with enrollment dates. Okay. Yeah, I mean, right now we actually have four different start dates for our programs, um, you know, April, June, September, and January. Uh, and we are offering all of our modules, um, so discrete modules, you know, two to six weeks, um, as independent learning experiences for, for, for those who are interested. Um, and we have, you know, quite a bit of take-up on those, and some are quite popular. You know, they're you know, particularly, you know, um, design in society or, you know, um, uh, reframing economic thinking or something along those lines. People would come in um, or stay online and engage in those learning experiences. I think that enhances the community of longer-term students that are already here. Mm-hmm. If you've got a cohort of 18 master's students and suddenly you get 15 people coming in from industry um, to take that module, can you imagine the conversations? Of, yeah, you know, that's yeah. absolutely fantastic. That's really interesting because I know that Previously, people have talked about, you know, will higher education become a sort of subscription? Will it become something where, you know, you, you kind of buy into whatever the university institutional brand is, what they stand for, and then, you know, you, you may uh, go to a library, you may go to a cafe that's sort of um, sponsored by them in some way, and, and it becomes like this, this free-flowing yeah. uh, thing that's not defined by the traditional estate. Yeah. Um, so when you talked about your student in Nepal or in Tanzania, it's quite interesting sort of thinking about building that community and that Schumacher mm-hmm. philosophy internationally. So will, will that become a sort of formalised thing or will it become sort of more like that community of, of learners and alumni that you talked about? I think it will be both. Um, part of it, I think, does need to be formalised because you are delivering 
you know, a program. Yeah. Um, and you're de delivering, say, a module. You know, so if we had a module, um, you know, let's say in, uh, in movement practice, um, and we had students that are interested in, you know, Colombia and Peru and, and South Africa and elsewhere who wanted to, to take part in that module, we would absolutely connect them with facilitators there, bring them on board for this module, but it would still be a discrete learning experience. Yeah. And then the projects that they would do and the relationships that they would build and the network that comes out of that um, would you know, spill out the edges. Mm -hmm. um, so that would, I think, really enhance that experience. Um, and you know, I, I've said somewhere elsewhere uh, that you know, I, and I think we're all coming to realize this, that the you know, undergraduate and graduate degree certificate is not the be-all, end-all of education. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And that it absolutely plays a role, um, but we're exploding that and finding yeah. you know, micro-credential routes, you know, alternate credentialing and badges that employers actually see as being particularly useful to identify you know, certain skill sets that, that mm -hmm. people might have, um, that students come in and say, I want to learn this particular set of skills. And in fact, I see that you're offering 40 different modules. Can I take you know, X, Y, and Z modules and create my own bespoke pathway. Mm -hmm. So those are things we're, we're just at the beginning of exploring. Yeah, I think the whole assessment thing's really interesting how that, you know, it's ripe for overhaul, isn't it, I think? So, Absolutely. Yeah. And are there any other sort of applications of technology you can see that would be part of your sort of learning strategy? Well... And it's, a, it's always an interesting question, um, and I've got a, a meeting right after this conversation, actually, with mm -hmm. the program lead in Movement Mind Ecology and our, our um, full-time learning technologist here on the estate, yeah. uh, thinking about you know, exactly what tech we're going to be using in that particular program, because it's movement-based. Mm -hmm. um, so how do, we capture, how do we capture some of that, yeah. um, some of that movement practice you know, through technology? How can we share some of those experiences? Um, and, you know, I do, you know, I led a series of workshops last year as we were coming into September of 2020 um, and, and, you know, looking at starting new programs that were necessarily going to have to be online largely. Yeah. So workshops with faculty about, you know, what are the tools that we might use? And we looked across the, you know, really the panoply of the, the thousands of apps yeah. that are out there. Um, and it really became clear that it's not about the technology specifically. It's not about mm. the, that there's no killer app that's going to solve this challenge. No. Um, and I've actually you know, written um, somewhere that you know once we start calling education virtual, then we've completely lost because it's always real, it's always tangible, yep. and it can't be at a remove of, of a piece of technology. I mean, that said, you know, we do you know, you know, use message boards and use... Um, sharing platforms where we can share videos and, and uh, photos and experiences. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we do use a fair bit of, um, you know, video, lecture capture uh, and archiving and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think we're fairly well positioned in terms of the tech we use, but it's how we use it mm -hmm. um, and how we actually um, sort of privilege the student experience over the online engagement. Mm -hmm. And I like that piece that you talked about earlier about access as well, so potentially, you know, allowing more people to access this this kind of philosophy of learning as well. Exactly. And then the other thing that I was interested to talk to you about was, um, you know, we hear more and more about um, sort of education being more sort of project-based and mission-led, yeah. and that's something that Schumacher College has been doing sort of since its um, inception, really. Yeah. So... Um, I wondered how you're seeing that evolve to become a more mainstream thing. 
Well, I mean, just, just to say at first that you're right. A lot of our education is grounded in the application of, you know, uh, learned skills mm -hmm. um, and knowledge. And, you know, I'll, I'll use this course coming up as an example. It's built on, uh, you know, partnerships that then the students can work with individual partners around the world uh, to develop their own uh, agendas in their dissertation projects or in uh, sort of developing a movement practice that they're, they're then going to pass on to community groups and facilitation and that sort of thing. Um, and many of our programs do exactly that sort of thing. Uh, we have a program that's running right now called Arts in Place, mm. um, where the students were here on site uh, for six weeks at this part of the Arts College. And for the following 10 weeks or so, they're moving around to different resi arts residencies at different organizations across the UK. Uh, and so that's, again, a distributed learning model where they have an immersive experience for, mm. let's say, a week, um, and then they, they come back at the end and share those in the project. Yeah, which is, which is great because um, I've got in my mind a sort of coding boot camp and um, the pushback often is they're quite sort of city-centric, so it's nice to hear of things that are sort of spreading out a bit exactly. beyond... Yeah, I guess that was another take on it. It's like, um, I put here, the pandemic has accelerated the trend of remote working and remote learning mm -hmm. and challenged our assumption that everything important has to happen in the mega cities. Yeah. How will this impact what happens in places like Schumacher? So are you seeing more people become interested as a result of, almost like a reversal of what I just spoke about, that everything has to happen in the cities? Well, I think so. And I, I think it, it actually has historically been that. Um, you know, that we have offered, and we actually just, we're celebrating our 30th anniversary of the college, we've just published a book, um, you know, called Transformative Learning. Uh, so people come here for a transformative experience, and, and just interestingly, people, you know, incoming students often ask me, so who's your typical student? Am I going to be out of place? I say, there absolutely is no typical student, you know, that comes yeah. to Darlington. Um, but if I was to try to hone in on one, it would be somebody who, you know, might be, you know, late 20s, early 30s, who has had experience um, out in the workforce and has kind of seen some of the challenges and perhaps is hitting some some blocks in terms of being able to develop networks, being able to you know, integrate ecological systems thinking into the work that they're doing and, and really wants that experience from here that they can go and reskill uh, and bring back to whatever they're doing. Yeah, yeah. So this, is kind of, this has, has been historically and I think continues to be a place for exactly that sort of purpose. Um, what we're seeing in terms of you know, not being London-centric you know, from my perspective, everybody from London seems to want to move to South Devon right now. Yeah. Um, as somebody who's trying to find a, pl a, you know, trying to move house and find another place to live, yeah. it's almost impossible. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. our students are finding the same challenges. Mm. So, like, there's no lack of people coming here to find whatever experience, um, whether they're able to remote work, you know, in businesses that are more urban yeah. and living out here in this beautiful environment. Um, but I think there's something there. There's still a next step there somewhere, which I, I think we haven't quite you know, lived into or, or tapped into, which is how to sort of integrate that remote working cohort mm -hmm. you know, into some of our learning experiences. Yeah. Um, because they're already networked in to organizations that aren't here. Yeah, right? yeah. So how can we kind of tap into and actually enhance our learning opportunities with that group of sort of newly arrived um, right. residents here? Yeah. Um, I had a few like rapid fire questions, <laughs> such, sure. uh, if you're up for them. Where were you born? I was born outside of Boston in Massachusetts in the States. I like Boston. Uh, tell us what your school life was like. I mean, I think I'd have to go beyond you know, primary school and, and into some of the you know, secondary school experiences yeah. where 
you know, I was able to tap into very outdoors-oriented groups um, and not do sort of the standards, you know, uh, physical education classes and then, mm-hmm. you know, go on rock climbing and go on hiking trips. Do you do a lot of running, if I remember correctly? I, I do do a lot of running, yes. Okay, yeah. 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 So I, that stayed with you? That is, That has actually developed later in life. Yeah. Um, I was much more, you know, a hiker and... Okay. Uh, you know, going on mountain walks and that sort of thing, yeah. but only in my really my late late twenties, early thirties, did I start taking running long distances more seriously. Okay, yeah, uh, and that has turned into quite a passion of mine. Hey, you should probably tell me all about your hundreds of miles in the Arctic and subarctic. <laughs> we always, we always that, come around to that. Don't we? There's not there's not something that most guests can really um, no kind of expound on. So. Yeah, so I think it was probably in 2013 or 2014, um, I had this idea, you know, having been doing endurance running for, for quite some time uh, already, and you know, having begun to teach courses in environmental humanities, and you know, thinking about how ecology, humanities, philosophy, um, sort of environmental thinking broadly intersect with one another. Um, and then I had this massive movement practice on the side, I thought, how do I connect these things? And so I developed this project called Climate Run, um, which has its own online presence, and um, and started running across you know large areas of the Arctic and subarctic. So I started out by uh, running across Iceland, um, you know, from the south coast to the north coast over three days um, one year, and then you know running all all of the highest peaks in the Faroe Islands and going up to Svalbard uh, and you know doing some running there and running across um, Arctic Scandinavia. Uh, you know, all with an eye toward um, effectively witnessing climate change um, mm-hmm. and the impact of you know, glacial melt and um, post-glacial rebound of the Earth's crust and sort of the impacts that that was having, having conversations with um, uh, people from uh, indigenous Sami communities uh, in Norway and Sweden, for example, and how climate change might be impacting them. Uh, and you know, really having sort of this firsthand, often quite miserable experience of <laughs> You know, running through landscapes that were more flooded and, and more, you know, in, in a different state than I had expected them to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but really sort of fantastic uh, experiences that brought me to the point of real, um, of understanding vulnerability um, of the human in the more than human world uh, in ways that I had never understood before. And so I used those experiences and sort of leveraged the real appeal of you know, looking at beautiful pictures and listening to great stories of, of adventure and was able to give quite a number of talks and presentations to people that really focused on this moment of how can you use the experience of being vulnerable in the world to then build a, a more resilient relationship between the human and the more than human and thus understand perhaps on a more visceral, visceral embodied level our relationship to climate change, which mm-hmm. sometimes is a big nebulous thing yeah. out there. Uh, and I think that that's been really successful. Uh, and as a result of that, I began teaching a series of courses in uh, applications of environmental philosophy, for example. How do you take this thinking and embody it in practice? Mm-hmm. Um, and that has actually led to the Movement Mind Ecology Master's program that we're, that we're running oh, now. Yeah. And that's kind of come to... You know, can we really explore that alive space between the human and the more than human? And once we think about that as being the center of everything, right, how does that change our discussion, change our relationship with, with the world, with one another, and so on? And how do you define the more than human? Well, I use that term very specifically because okay. um, very often people say, oh, it's human and nature, or humans and the environment, right, or humans okay. and the landscape, or humans and the non-human. 
Uh, and for me, it's recognizing that the world around us is more than us. Right, right, um, right. And that yeah. we are part of this this broader system. It's perhaps more an, a, a, a nod to the system's approach. Yeah, so taking us out of being the center of that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's what's often called in philosophy a post-human approach, where, you know, if you take your lens and humans are not at the center of the world, then all of a sudden that changes virtually everything. Yeah, I suppose I put here, like, what is your big idea? Yeah, well, I mean, I've got, I've got so many, right? But right in the context of this conversation, in the context of developing curriculum, right, I do consider myself sort of a curriculum designer. Um, you know, so when we're thinking about, you know, how can we, uh, going back to what we talked about, how can we create more accessible learning um, to a greater diversity of participants that, st that carries with it this sense of um, embodied experiential practice? Right, so I absolutely believe that experiential hands-on learning um, you know, is fundamental uh, at both the undergraduate and postgraduate level to you know, you know, uh, building a set of skills, um, you know, building communities of learners that then go on and do wonderful things mm. in the world, which is, which is what we want. Right? And so you know, what I'm working on now is, is as, as we talked about, for piloting in, in the course this summer um, and looking at how we integrate that into some of our other postgraduate and undergraduate programs, how we make the modules in those courses um, accessible both online and in person so that we can increase access um, and really sort of capitalize on a diversity of experiences rather than just a singular uh, experience inside, in place. Uh, and then finally, is there anyone else that you would recommend on the podcast that you kind of think, wow, I really like what they do? Have you talked to Brian Alexander? I think I've spoken to him in, a, in a, my previous job, Long Hair. Yeah, yeah, long yeah, hair, yeah, big beard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's funny. Absolutely brilliant. Okay, um, yeah. yeah. He'd be a good person to get on there. Yeah. Yep. I mean, his, his book that came out last year, the year before, about for the future of higher education, that talked about what if there was a pandemic, what would we do? Oh, really? Um, wow. Just struck me as being incredibly prescient and forward thinking. Yeah, yeah. And his blog, yeah, I do go to his blog quite quite uh, frequently. Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. that's a good recommendation. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time, and uh, yeah, it was great talking to you. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>